Welcome in everybody to another episode of uh, Hacked History. Uh, today's a very special episode. Uh, you get Jake and I, plus you get two of our friends from uh, California, the host of uh, Least Haunted. Hi everybody. Hi guys. <laughs> it's it's a pl- it's a pleasure to be your special guest on this episode. I'm very much looking forward to this. We've made it to the big night. <laughs> <laughs> I have never digitally been to Wisconsin. I've never digitally been to California, so... <laughs> it's exactly what you expect it would be. I've been to Wisconsin a couple times, but I've never digitally been to Wisconsin. So. <laughs> I've never been to California either way, so... <laughs> Everything's a new experience for me. Um, but, but anyway, um, so today in the podcast, it's going to be a special two-part episode. Part one's going to be on our podcast... Chronicling the life and times of Sir Francis Bacon. <laughs> and then part two is going to be a special haunted history episode talking about the uh, chicken ghost that spawned from the death of Sir Francis Bacon. <laughs> so some fun stuff. <laughs> fun stuff ahead. He is also nicknamed the originator of the Baconator. <laughs> is he really? Oh, really? Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Given the fa- That's just what he made Queen Elizabeth call him. <laughs> <laughs> that, that files in later to this history lesson. Oh, that's amazing. That's how he got the name. Oh, uh, yes. Right. Uh, I like it. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Bring me the bacon, <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, I love it. Uh, well, Jake, without further ado, All let's right. talk about Sir Francis Bacon. All right, so... We are going to start with some basic research like we did in all of our original podcast episodes. But as Lucas alluded to, this character, Francis Bacon, was born January 22nd of 1561. And he was born in as a second child in the family to his father, Sir Nicholas Bacon, who at the time was known specifically as Lord Keeper of the Seal, which was a royal title in politics. And that was a big deal back then because it was considered to be sort of, I would say it would be kind of considered in a way, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, aesthetic. But it did hold high power because not a lot of people would be able to hold that position. Would it be fair to say he was bringing home the bacon? Yes. (laughs) You're going to owe me money for every joke you make. It's all going to be the same joke. Yep. <laughs> We've got one joke we're going to use about a hundred times. So, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Francis's mother was Lady Alice Cook Bacon, because this joke apparently writes itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she was daughter of Sir Anthony Cook, who was tutor to Edward VI, who was a king, and was a leading humanist sort of uh, philosopher at the time. So... Beginning in his early life, Francis already had, like, his pathway set because he had a father who was involved in high politics in the king, or in the kingdom, and then he also had a mother who also had uh, connections. So, with his oldest brother, Anthony, Francis grew to adulthood in a household where political power, humanist ideas, and Calvinist religious zeal would later determine his later thinking process, obviously. Aren't Calvinists the one that, the the sect that also said that, like, singing is a sin? So a real cheery dude, a fun household. Yes. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> that's, that's not a fun religion. They take religious zeal to a whole new, whole new levels. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> like, to being, yeah, like, to being uh, exiled to Switzerland, whole new level. So upon the construction of their new home in a place called Gorhambury, in the 1560s, which I could not find on a map, so I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist anymore. If it does, then someone in the comments will get mad at me and tell wait, me. Wait, I'm wait, wrong. wait, wait. You've never heard of the booming metropolis of <laughs> Garmherberry before? <laughs> no, not at all. I've also never digitally been to Garmherberry before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure they were screwing with people at one point in time where they started, like, sneaking in, like, Lord of the Rings references to, like, yeah, it's in the Twin Towers right next to London or whatever. No, just everything everything uh, over there in, in, like, England has very fanciful names. Uh, as Garth and I discussed in an early episode of our podcast where... 
uh, about a talking mongoose in a place called Cashin's Gap. Oh, I know about the talking mongoose from Cashin's Gap. <laughs> uh, and it's like, in my mind, I've talked to people from Britain who always have the same response to hearing about their own town, which is like no civic pride whatsoever. So they're like, um, oh, yeah, I come from Gorenbury. It's shit. <laughs> That's always the response. The trains are on time. <laughs> I know that we have some listeners in, I think, Ashford in the east of the UK. So I'm sure they'll point out to us. They'll get all defensive. Or they'll be like, no, no, that place is a shithole. We've been there. Oh. <laughs> they... Yeah, I'll be curious if they if, uh, agree or not to that one. <laughs> And we try to do an English accent, I'd be bouncing up the Midlands because I can't do a, a standard accent because they're all different. I always impress British people when I do a British accent. They're always they always love it. That that doesn't mean that they approve. Not, not just really. that they find it humorous. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they're they're laughing at me or with me. I can't tell. <laughs> oh, how quaint the colonists are finding it funny. If we laugh, he'll do more. Please don't encourage them. <laughs> Those silly rebellious Americans. <laughs> it's like a it's like a younger child in the family who likes to do stuff for attention. So anyway, so Gorhambury. Let's go back to yeah. that. So anyway, back to the good old town of Gorhambury. So Francis and his brother would be educated there during their early lives before going to Trinity College in Cambridge, and that would happen between 1573 and. 1585 or no 1575 basically sort of a context for listeners where people are like wow he went to college really really young there was no like early grade school you just went straight to university pretty much otherwise you were pretty much uneducated so you were like kind of homeschooled just learning to read and write the basics and then you just get propelled to, to university. You went to Hogwarts, you know, you, you do your basic education at home. And at the age of 10, they ship you off to the magic school. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he ran through a train platform and... Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah if, if I've learned anything about English education, it's that. <laughs> in wartime or not in wartime, they ship you off by train. Just some kind of magical adventure, be it schools or wardrobes, whatever. <laughs> I love the wear the wardrobe. That <laughs> was great. So uh, anyway, while they were there, though, uh, Francis sort of had a rebellious streak. So while they were enrolled at the university, Francis became earmarked as a person who sharply criticized the existing academic methods and training. And a lot of the teachers hated him. <laughs> hated him. <laughs> So he was, like, really edgy. He's just like, no, you guys are doing it all wrong. What do you mean the world is flat, old-timer? He's the kid in the very front row in the college class who's like, well, actually, and raises their arm, to, their hand to, like, correct the professor. <laughs> yeah, they contend with those people. Oh. He's the original OK Boomer. That's what he is. Oh, yeah, he is. <laughs> oh, that's a good way of putting it. I actually kind of wrote that down in my notes. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So, um... To that point, after being tutored by a man known as John Whitgift. Okay, that's just perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Who would later become the Archbishop of Canterbury. So all the way through his life, Bacon is like sort of rubbing shoulders with really influential people of the time. He began his own studies at a place known as Gray's Inn in London in 1576. Uh, Gray's Inn as a context was basically sort of like this building where all of the banister or barristers and <laughs> banisters barristers and lawyers would go to study law and create new laws and discuss the idea of law pretty much it was a school dedicated to law that was it like a hmm. like a harvard pretty much yeah and uh, at Gray's Inn, it or I kind of added that extra context. So it comprised, though, it was one of four inns, ideally. So they would stay there. They're kind of like dormitories. And they would have those professional associations of banisters and judges. So, yeah, I'm just kind of re-repeating myself. But from 1577 to 1578, he accompanied a man known as Sir Almas Paulet, an English ambassador to the crown while on a mission to Paris. So this is as early as it was when he started doing politics. Uh, during his hmm. stay... Oh, you want to say something? Oh, no. I was just going, hmm. Hmm. Oh, okay. It started off like... Hmm, uh, uh, bacon. 
<laughs> Mowing down on a BLT from Sonic somewhere. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, so 1577 to 1578, he accomplished uh, Paulet, and while he was in Paris, that was pretty much his whole job. Basically, he was sort of like an aide-de-camp for the ambassador. Whatever the ambassador needed, he was there to do it. Like a like a page boy? Pretty much. He was, he was an unpaid intern for Google. That's what this... <laughs> pretty much. Ooh, that's edgy right there. <laughs> Gonna have the people who own Google come kicking the door in now. We heard that a couple of guys in central Wisconsin were talking shit, so we're going to bring the full might down. <laughs> to be fair, it's probably more risky for them to talk about Google. They live in California. Yeah. That's probably true. <laughs> oh, yeah, no one speaks ill of Google. Praise Google. <laughs> Praise Google, everyone. Praise Google. <laughs> we, all love the great, we all love the great Google. All hail the cloud. All hail Google. <laughs> it's funny because they're so like progressive that they're tyrannical and despotic, but they still let you like have your own thought process. As long as that thought process eventually leads you to their conclusions. <laughs> we'll let you come to this conclusion. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yep. <laughs> but the algorithm will do it for you. It's the alphabet company, guys. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> So anyway, uh, as Bacon was staying in Paris, he would return to England at least a couple of times as a diplomatic messenger, delivering letters to very notable people. There was the Duke of Walsingham, <laughs> Berkeley, who was his father-in-law, or would later be his father-in-law, and would later become a friend of his. Uh, Leicester, who was also a duke, but was very influential with sort of the royal family, and to the queen herself, who at this point in time would have been Elizabeth I. So this would have been like the Spanish Armada sort of queen. She she was just Elizabeth at that point, right? Or <laughs> there were no others. <laughs> Pretty much, it was just Elizabeth. But... It's, or... it, it's it's just like the uh, the Great War versus World War One sort of thing, where no one at the time called it World War One. Because like what World War One? <laughs> when you say World War One, and what guys like there's another one of those shits coming along the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So kind of moving forward to to 1579 francis's father passed away of natural causes at the time which was probably some sort of consumption or they according to our bleeding episode they probably bled him to death based on the fact he had a throat cold or who knows um or it was you know the the ripe old age 40 uh, yeah they, they took him off to the they took him off to the logan's run carousel when he reached an old age and that was it <laughs> <laughs> it was his time it was it was his time as he's kicking and screaming in the cart as they're taking him away. I'm not dead yet. So uh, even with his what? I said, oh my gosh. I know. So even with his father's passing and his return to England, obviously to deal with that, he got a more permanent sort of residence there to to again deal with all of the things that his father had to leave him or leave behind. Uh, as he was there, though. He found that there was a very small inheritance from his father. So for all the political clout he had, he had very little money. Because most people started off like pretty much at nothing. Um, he could not find any assistance from his family members, which was also a big kind of blow to him. Because of all the influential people, none of them could give him a hand. Hmm. And so he ended up going back to his sort of political or is the start of his political career, where he was <clears throat> working to get into the House of Commons, which at that point in time was open to, I think, anybody or anybody who had influence. And at the same time, he started resuming his law studies at Gray's Inn again. So moving forward to, and my Google document just decided to freak out. They heard you talking about him. <laughs> I know, yeah, that's the problem. It's like, I'll show you what's what, young blood. <laughs> young blood. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> oh my god. Okay, here we go. It just decided to jump like three pages down. So, anyway. Uh, he would... Uh, here we go. So, in, in 1581, Francis entered the Commons as a member, an honorary member. And in this case, he was representing the District of Cornwall. Where that is, I honestly can't remember. <laughs> there are so many districts, and they're all kind of the same name. 
Oh, they'll tell us in the comment section. Don't worry. Oh, they'll they'll say it, but they'll say bruv and mate with the letter or with the number eight. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> basically that was sort of a, like official start, and so he remained in Parliament for thirty-seven years, which was pretty big for most people who would dedicate their entire lives to just that one pursuit. But he did other things. I guess they didn't have term limits back then. A lot of people didn't even get 37 years of life. Exactly. Yeah, pretty much. It's like so, he spent like someone else's lifetimes worth in in Parliament, yeah. He was like a demon from the Ghostbusters movie. He just draws life force into him to continue doing politics. Oh, it's like Mitch McConnell. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch McConnell's a time traveler. We know that. It's crazy. That's the... F- that's the face that pl- flashed into my mind, too. I was like, oh, yeah. Like There's a picture out there of Mitch somewhere at Fort Sumter in 1860. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. No, I think that somewhere there's a portrait in a uh, of Mitch McConnell that's getting progressively younger and better looking in an attic. <laughs> like, a, like the portrait of Dorian Gray. It's <laughs> reverse Dorian Gray it's situation. Like, yeah. Benjamin Button sort of thing. Oh, no. <laughs> The, the inverted Benjamin Button Dorian Gray painting. Ooh. Oh, my gosh. Oh. <laughs> it just looks like a scared turtle. Anyway. I should know that. A young scared turtle. Yeah. So, anyway. He would be admitted to the bar, which was sort of the uh, jumping point for most lawyers. Anybody who studies American law knows that the bar is sort of the test you have to pass in order to actually practice law officially. He did that in 1582 and then would be elected as a reader at the Grays Inn in 1587, which was pretty important because that meant he was sort of like the top man on the totem pole for that particular group. So it wasn't like he was just some random guy who was okay. He, he had to be pretty good to get that position. Uh, but Francis' involvement in high politics began earnestly in 1584, so sort of in between that. Uh, at that point in time, he penned what was known as a political, men- or he penned his political memorandum called, almost condescendingly, a letter of advice to Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> That's really risky. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, back then. Oof. Yeah. Uh, but not for the Baconator, come on. <laughs> pretty much no, no. pretty much it should have been titled like how i'm going to tell you how to do your job yeah at the end of the letter he didn't even sign it francis bacon he signed it the baconator the baconator <laughs> yeah. it was it was also a head titled it was like an open invitation for you to cut my head off because <laughs> you know what she like she loved francis drake and that guy got the axe mm. right so oh yeah i mean oh could... and Wal- walter raleigh like all them people yeah, <laughs> yeah. The best part about that, Lucas, is in my mind. I'm thinking of her reading it in, like, the royal chamber. And it's just reading it. And then she, like, has, like, reading glasses, slowly takes it off and goes, that son of a bitch. <laughs> Get him. <laughs> yeah, she just makes, like, she just makes, like, the, uh, like, the cutting of the, of the neck, like, <laughs> that, that gesture. Yeah. Oh, God. So, anyway, um, sort of to better explain what that memorandum was, in the letter that he wrote, Bacon offered his opinion and advice on dealing with, at the time, the disparate religious groups in England, namely the Catholics and the Protestants, which is still a problem in that country and in, like, Ireland especially in the most modern history. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to question on the troubles because I really don't want a pipe bomb in my house anytime the next week. Yeah, we just got a listener in Dublin yesterday, too, so let's not piss them off. Yeah. <laughs> let's not talk about the troubles. <laughs> He'll just write a lengthy, like, 30-paragraph, like, let me tell you the history. That, that one guy in Dublin's like, oh, my God, they, they mentioned me. <laughs> <laughs> they, they know. <laughs> they know. <laughs> uh, I, I have a question. So he was talking about the Catholics versus the Protestants. At this point, was it like the Church of England? Had Henry VIII already done his separation? Yeah. Yeah. He, he's, he's Elizabeth's father. Oh, okay. I don't know much about this this history, so that's that was interesting. <laughs> real, real quick, we don't mind me derailing for a second. They made this movie back in like 2008 that was called The Other Boleyn Girl. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, it's yeah, all about like Anne Boleyn, right? So I go to see it in the theaters because I'm dragged there by my girlfriend at the time. And at the very end of the movie... Because uh, they introduced the fact that his Elizabeth was born. At the end, they have like little text that says what happened to each person after, and it's like, 
and she grew up to be Queen Elizabeth the first. And this lady in front of me, I swear to God, is like, oh. And I'm just like, <laughs> you went to this All right, movie, Karen, calm down. Thing. <laughs> Daughter of the king named Elizabeth, and you didn't figure that shit out before they told you? <laughs> Who would think? She was so lucky she became queen after all that. <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> I mean, when when I think about movie-going groups and I watched um, the first Avengers movie, which I still recommend, I love that certain cases there are people who know everything about the subject matter yeah. and then some people who don't know anything. So the part where, like, Loki and Thor fight Captain America and I think Iron Man for the first time. Yeah, it was Iron Man. There was like 15 people in the back row losing their collective minds over that moment. And then there was one dude up the front just shouting, what the fuck is happening? (laughs) Like he doesn't know who these characters are. It is such a mystery to him. And God bless that man. I feel bad that we dragged my dad to see Return of the King and he never didn't know anything about Lord of the Rings. We brought it to oh, He no. hadn't seen the other two? That's that's cruel. Oh, <laughs> man. That's just mean. That's so oh, many no. plot lines that they have to like explain to him now. Why are they all short? That would be impossible to, to parse. I don't even know. He might have fallen Probably. asleep halfway through. I don't know. If you get to like one of those AMC theaters where they have like the leather seats, it, yeah, it's hard not to. Oh, those are so comfy. Oh, remember theaters? Uh, theaters. Oh, yeah, those were nice. What are theaters? <laughs> right? What? <laughs> oh, they're a thing of the long ago past, much like Francis Bacon. <laughs> oh, oh good, that's good great segment. pullback. <laughs> Reel it in. Usually it's my job. And then your phone call. <laughs> so, anywho. Uh, yeah, so basically he was one of the people, too, who throughout his life, too, is sort of a predecessor to this, or predecessor to everything else that would happen. He dealt a lot in religious politics and how to deal with these groups because you had, like, serious conflicts. I know the Hundred Years' War isn't one, but, I mean, basically sectional factions would just war with each other because reasons. I mean, sure, they had good reasons, but honestly, I'm not going to go into them. They all wanted power, man. Yeah. See, religion. (laughs) Religion. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? (laughs) To quote that lady. Oh! (laughs) That's the type of lady that writes, like, a review. That would be a good reason to go to war. Yes. (laughs) Lucas, you're losing your phone. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, man. Yeah, my phone will just do what it wants. Let's keep going. Yeah, no. It was doing what it wanted like 20 minutes ago. It's got a mind of its own. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, Francis began the process of establishing himself in his adult life. Basically, sort of setting the stage for what he would do for the remainder of his human existence. He began to make other life plans, including one that would make him famous in the scientific world, however. Uh, Bacon aimed at revising the natural philosophy of science or society and science. And in following his late father's example, he tried to secure further high political office. So very early on in his career, Francis began outlining a new method of scientific experimentation, emphasizing empirical or observable slash verifiable methods of scientific research, and in turn laying the early foundations for applied sciences to modern context. So when they talk about sort of the idea of like testing your theory and hypothesis and then taking the result and seeing what you did right, what went wrong and how you can change, that all comes kind of out of his impetus. Um, And Google's decided to be just really irritating again. I think that I think they call it the uh, the bacon method, right, which is not just the practice of uh, fast food restaurants adding bacon to everything to boost sales. It's also a scientific principle. <laughs> Bacon makes everything better, though, don't you know? In science and, and in food. Yeah. 
Oh, don't worry. We'll we'll get to that when we get to our uh, our episode. I, I was a, a managed a smokehouse and butcher shop for nine years. We're gonna talk about some bacon. Oh, oh yeah. I love it. Yes. Oh, Perfect. love me some smoked meats. <laughs> Poor Garth, the vegetarian <laughs> over there, is loving Garth this. Garth is like, I don't. Yeah, I'm I'm here representing all the oh, here representing all the vegetarian listeners, thinking, yeah, all right. Um, there are dozens of us. <laughs> I mean, so you relatable. <laughs> you could fault Cody on that one, but me and Lucas come from Wisconsin, where like brats. Oh, I'm the only one here. I, I, I'm assuming that. <laughs> oh, okay. So, uh, anywho, uh, Bacon's attempts at reforming the then contemporary idea of the sciences was not received well, however, from his colleagues. And from Queen Elizabeth and her advisor, Lord Berkeley, who we had mentioned before, that he worked for and delivered messages to. And Lucas lost his phone again. <laughs> for those listening at home, Lucas's phone continues to flip on its back, showing the ceiling. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave it this time. Just leave. It. <laughs> <Should I> keep recording. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, meanwhile, at the political level, Francis continued his path to high office, becoming a successful lawyer and a parliamentarian. So he moved up from House of Commons up to the actual, like, parliament where they would sort of debate policy and uh, legal ideas. Uh, from 1584 to 1617, through over that span, Bacon would enter into the House of Commons as a committed active member. And that sort of was, like, his major... Excuse me? His major sort of like uh, job role was that he basically went and debated as a lawyer and as a lawmaker. During this time, Bacon would play a role in the investigation of English Catholics under the guide of a famed English, I like the term, spy master. Yes. Francis, <laughs> Francis Walsingham and would argue for certain actions regarding Mary, Queen of Scots, who had attempted to lead sort of like a coup against her sister. I believe it was her sister. It might have been her sister-in-law. Cousin, I think. The oh, it was cousins, yeah. Elizabeth, yeah. yeah. Like I said, I, I too kind of went past the Tudor era because this whole thing was intrigue and there were specific people who were like, that's so cool. And I'm like, when do we get to like the revolutions and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I think actually, I think she was uh, the inspiration for the nursery rhyme, Mary, Mary, quite contrary, yeah. how does your garden yeah. grow? Which is actually just wow. a failed way of calling her a whore. <laughs> yeah. Probably. How does your garden grow? Yeah. Oh. Ooh. Nursery rhymes are just like, they're just chock full of dark references. Like oh, my, yeah. fav my favorite personal one is Ring Around the Rosie. Uh, like oh. the actual meaning of. Oh, yes. Yeah. The actual meaning of that one is just so dark. What? That's what we thought, too. We, we, we got into that, actually. We did a plague episode, and I I had a hard time. It's a little... The, the jury's out, but I had a hard time substantiating the idea that the Ring Around the Rosie was actually to do with the bubonic plague. That's, like, that's the thing you hear, but I, I don't know that that's necessarily... Because I think it didn't show up in print for the first time until, like, 1890s or the early 20th century, so it was, like... Exactly. Th yeah. There's not a lot... No reference to... of it before. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot to indicate that it was I, I've heard from, that it, from that long ago. I've heard that it could also be re re regarding, like, cholera, which might make more sense, g given... That sounds more possible, plausible. Yeah. 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 It's, I can see that. it's definitely about dying oh, children, yes. though. <laughs> so Or people in general. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's anyway, terrible. like most nursery rhymes of the time, it was about dying children. Such a great topic. Anyway, great topic. <laughs> it was a real banger of a time period to be alive. For that brief, you know, 20, 25 years you'd get. Twenty-five, maybe twenty-five, <laughs> unless you were rich. Yeah, or immortal. Who knows? I still had like mythos like, going on then. Are we talking about the Highlander? <laughs> maybe. Or you're Mitch McConnell, remember? Yeah. If you're Mitch McConnell. <laughs> Mitch McConnell is the Highlander. Don't you forget it. <laughs> Turtles do live a long they time. Do. That, that's true. He's the Galapagos tortoise of Republican senators. <laughs> Wasn't there a tortoise like in Australia that was brought there by Darwin that was still alive like up until a few years ago? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah I remember that. It. Yeah. I remember the Dar Darwin's turtle, yeah. Or tortoise. <laughs> I bet you can make some good turtle bacon. <laughs> Speaking of bacon... <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, most of the time, of course, he would also serve on several royal committees. So Francis 
being the lawyer had to sort of join these groups and investigations and discussions and certain things that were facing the country at the time. And they regarded a lot of management laws regarding the people in England and actually England itself. So he served on the 1588 committee. These are just some examples of what he did. He served on the 1588 committee regarding the recusants who were individuals refusing to submit to the authority or comply with the releg or sorry, comply with the regulations of the sort of royal decrees of the queen and king. Uh, in, if there is a king at that point in time, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, there is. I don't think she ever got married, right? I think she's like the virgin queen, right? It's an entirely... I, I, think, yeah. I think so, too, actually. I remember that. Yeah. Like I said, I, I take any sort of, like, correction on it because, to be honest, for me, it's like having to dredge all this AP European history knowledge back up again. Yeah. To be fair, most of what I know about this time period comes from the Black Adder, so... That's true. <laughs> what do I know? Love that show so much. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he is, the issue mostly dealt, though, with religious individuals who decided to just refuse to accept sort of like the Church of England as the quote-unquote true church. And so he kind of had to decide and had to work with the committee on like how do how the hell do we deal with these people? <laughs> like short of like murdering large swaths of them just to get rid of them. You know, he didn't advocate for it, but that probably would have been the natural reaction given what a... I guarantee you somebody else in the House of Commons was totally pushing for that. Oh, like yeah, Henry VIII oh, is in, sure. like, dressed up and, like, someone else is like, yeah, you should probably cut his head off. <laughs> Just like, Henry, is that you? Shouldn't you be doing other stuff right now? No, I'm good. <laughs> but uh, he membered a committee that oversaw the revision of laws overall in England. So they were looking at ways to sort of revise the laws and make them a little bit more, quote, unquote, contemporary for the 1500s. Um, which was still pretty archaic by now standard, but I don't like to see it that way. Uh, Bacon was commonly involved in discussions and committees. I'm probably going to laugh at least twice by that. Looking into the political aspects and religious questions regarding the state, especially those concerning, again, the conflicts between the Church of England and what they called nonconformists. So it could have been Catholics. It could have been any group. It could have honestly been like pagan religious groups too, because those still existed, especially in Ireland. Up until that point in time, they had pretty much snuffed most of that out, but there were still some sects that they were trying to either get into the fold or get rid of. And he kind of had the sort of front row seat to having to deal with that really sensitive problem. Um, in a tract written in 1591, which is, you know, there will be a little bit of jumping around just as a clear warning. Bacon would attempt to strike a more moderate tone on religious politics, but would against his better interest be commissioned to pen an edict against English Jesuit priest Robert Parson, who had earlier attacked the concept of English sovereignty in his writings. And so he, even though he didn't like to take a side on this, he'd like to be a moderate, they sort of forced his hand and said, no, you've got to have to write against this guy. Well, so Jesuit being Catholic, so they definitely already were like, eh. Yeah, no, we don't like you. <laughs> kind of like the idea of like Mennonites or Quakers. In England, like, those are people that we know in America to not be a huge deal because they're on our oatmeal, pretty much. But in England, they're, like, akin to Satan or something like that. It's, like, really bizarre, their way of seeing us. Um, from the late, eight, or, sorry, 1850s. From the late 1580s onwards, as Google decides to just decidedly irritate me continuously, <laughs> it knows we've talked about it. So it just now is continuously trying to, like, attack me here and get rid of all the stuff I'm trying to do. Here we go. Okay. So from the late 1850s onwards, Francis would search and find patronage in the form of the Earl of Essex because his original patronage with the, um, <clears throat> with the ambassador had basically sort of run its course and he was looking for somebody else to give him money. That's what a lot of people back then, especially in Renaissance page or <laughs> Renaissance times, a lot of like the famous artists and sculptors usually found patronage. That was sort of their payment. And they're right, constantly it's... searching for people to pay them. Which is a prime time for us to all talk about our new Patreon, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was just going to say it's the, uh, uh, it's the, the modern day equivalent would be J.G. Wentworth. Because if you, need, if you have a structured settly, set the settlement or an annuity and you need cash now... Call one eight seven seven. No, what? That's the wrong number. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna start dialing some guy out in Arizona. Eight seven seven cash now. That's what it is. 
<laughs> Alright, thanks. Now we're gonna have to pay him a tithe. Great. <laughs> Comes on like the old pope on a large golden chair telling you to give me money. <laughs> no, I feel like we're giving them free free publicity. Yeah, They're not even he, advertising with us. He so. might, yeah. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> I love the I love the aside on that. It just completely pulls it all to a stop, and we got to keep moving. Uh, but yeah, he found that patronage in the Earl of Essex in that phase of his life. Of course, Bacon was almost totally devoting himself to the study of natural philosophy too. Uh, but Bacon was cited in a letter to his uncle Lord Bur- or Burley at this point in time, which again was sort of his uncle, but also kind of became his father-in-law. <laughs> I heard it from two ways, and back then that's not entirely surprising. But uh, he states that I have taken all knowledge to be my province, and if I could purge it of two sorts of rovers, which is a great term to call people who don't know what the hell they're talking about, (laughs) whereof the one with frivolous disputations, confutation, and verbosities, the other with blind experiments and auricular traditions and impostures. All those words that he stated to do not exist anymore. None of like the like the adjectives he quotes exists in a dictionary anywhere. This quote is frustrating me. As like a historian, I'm just trying to understand, and I'm just like, what? This is sort of the part where it matters the most. So he states, "I hope I should bring in industrious observations, grounded conclusions, and profitable inventions and discoveries the best state of that province." Basically, meaning that he was fed up with all these quote unquote scientists who were using the wrong methods to get their answers, and their answers could be flawed, their answers could just be, you know, slightly right, slightly wrong, or totally wrong entirely. Hmm. And he was basically stating sort of his intention that on top of politics, he would say, I'm going to dedicate myself to bettering the sciences, which at this point in time was starting to gain a lot of traction. Because this is the same time period where you have Copernicus and Galileo, you start to have like is it Peter the Navigator? Is the uh, the um, the Portuguese um, explorer? Yeah. yeah, you're starting to see a lot of that starting to happen. No, it's Henry. The, it's actually Henry, uh, Henry the, Navigator. the Navigator, not Peter. But the Navigator. Uh, but just a quick aside, this is the kind of guy that if he was if he was alive at a different time period, say like the 1980s, he definitely would have started a punk rock band for sure. Oh yeah, he's totally counterculture. It'd be perfect. It could be the Baconators and, uh... (laughs) (laughs) How do you like that now, Alexander Haig? That's a history joke that only me and Lucas will get. (laughs) Ronald Reagan's Secretary of State. Oh, okay. (laughs) I I, I was born at the very very end of the Reagan administration. I don't remember that. You're a lucky individual. (laughs) No, no, because when I booted on and became self-aware, it was right in the middle of Bush the Elder, and it's also fucked up that we have to say Bush the Elder. (laughs) That's his preferred name, or was. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting about um uh, about Bacon though. He's like applying. He wants more scientific rigor. Uh, and coming for, as a statesman and a lawyer, it's interesting. He's like applying that kind of, you know, you have to pass the bar to be a lawyer. You have to pass some kind of like you have to have like a standard for science. Uh, yeah. I wonder if that came into it for him. I think if I remember correctly, he was like really did not like aristotle no no he like despised him he thought aristotle made too many leaps yeah well the idea was that um aristotle thought you could uh, you could come to conclusions about the world just based on your own thought processes oh you could be an armchair everything yeah and, and bacon was more like yeah you can do that but you have to actually experiment to get better evidence and then you can like do deduct- deductive reasoning mm-hmm. but yeah, I think he wrote a book that was... Uh, sorry if I'm cutting into your thing, Jake. Uh, no, 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 that's fine. I think he wrote, writes a book that's like... He basically just took the title of like Aristotle's book and then just like put like the new on top of it. It was like, fuck you. Oh. <laughs> that's, that's that's so uh, punk uh, rock, uh, though. That's <laughs> racist. It really is. It is. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know he despised Aristotle just based on that sort of theory. And what Garth said was absolutely right. Like, he was pushing for a more rigorous experimentation process so your answers were more realistic than just, yeah, I tested it once, and it looks like it applies to what I said, so I'm right. Like, Or I sat back and thought about it. It just feels yeah, right. I know. Like, how could it be? Yeah, so I, I, I have a hunch. 
<laughs> I think Aristotle actually did do an experiment where he dropped a, an anvil and a feather at the same time. And then he didn't take the next step. Like, well, let's drop two things that are the same weight at the same time or whatever. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the, the feather drops slower because that makes sense. Okay, that's all I need to know. And it's not until, like, Galileo's like, well, let's drop two things of equal weight, you know? So, something with less air, air, yeah. air resistance. Yeah. Well, it, it's literally something a little bit more dense than a feather. It's literally causation and does not always equal correlation. It's the whole mm. fucking thing. Yeah. And, and yeah, like to that point too, him being a lawyer and being a politician added extra credibility because it meant that it puts him in a position to do this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It gave him the opportunity and the money too to do that sort of thing. Plus he's also like in with the church, isn't he? So he can like, unlike Galileo who gets like railroaded, uh, he's like, oh no, no, I, I, I play within the realms of the church. I'd imagine, right? To a degree, like a lot of the stuff where he deals in religion, he does try to sort of strike a moderate tone, but a lot of times he is restricted to certain things based on the fact that there is a royalty aspect. Hmm. So it is in certain points he probably might have been playing within the church's sort of okay square, like you can do this, but we you won't get in trouble. But two, I think he had to sort of be like, uh, I I do want to say something about this, but I also can't. Yeah. Right. It was sort of a complex situation with him. And it's entirely sort of similar that he, he could have worked within the church, but it really didn't define him as far as I know. To, I mean, there could be information out there that we don't know. Okay. Yeah. So in moving forwards to 1593, he had been doing experiments on the side. He'd been doing law stuff on the side. Nothing really noteworthy until he kind of, fucks up his relationship with Queen Elizabeth. He fell out of favor with the Queen on account of his refusal to comply with the royal request for funds from Parliament, which was a normal procedure. They did this all the time. But it should be noted that what made the Queen angry at him was that Bacon did not dislike the request for funds specifically. He disagreed with the time span required to pay and he offered a better alternative, probably. And the queen just said, you're stupid, you're out. <laughs> like, that was it. Wow. Oh, so it's like anybody who tries to disagree with Trump then, right? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> you throw a baseball at one game and he gets upset. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're getting edgy now. Topical. <laughs> <laughs> we got, like, angry listeners. I come here to relax, not listen to this. Oh, you don't need to put politics into everything. I don't want to speak for, for your podcast, but if anybody's got a problem with that, you don't need to listen to Least Haunted. You can, even There's other podcasts for you. <laughs> oh, no. Jake and I constantly... We bash on politics so much. Oh. That if anybody <laughs> listens to this podcast, they're probably used to it by now. <laughs> or they come here for it, depending. Yeah, they're here for the abuse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. There's always that section of listeners there, actually. <laughs> the weirdly like politically sadomasochistic group who's like oh yeah talk more shit have you seen the uh you know the don't tread on me flag there's there's a good one that's like the snake is uh it's got a gag in its mouth and it says please tread on me daddy <laughs> it's like yeah that's kinda, that is kind of their mindset yeah the i want to know the one guy who goes to like a trump rally with that flag thinking nothing was amiss until he sees everyone else's flags. It's like, don't tread on me. Don't tread on me. Please tread on me, Wait daddy. Wait a second. <laughs> what the hell? One of these things isn't like the other. <laughs> he <d> <laughs> oh, oh, wait okay. a second. <laughs> so anyway. If he's a real Francis Bacon, he might make the connection. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. yeah. So from that sort of, sort of incident, I guess, the queen was upset, and from this perceived disrespect, Francis received seriously sharp criticism from a lot of noted parliamentarians, one being Sir Robert Cecil, and someone we had mentioned before, Sir Walter, ah, God, words, Sir Walter Raleigh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because as we find out, kissing the queen's ass doesn't exactly secure your life, but... No. No. Um, the anger that arose from Bacon's actions, or rather maybe lack of action, and more his, like, disagreement with the Queen, did sabotage his overall intentions of receiving his 
high political office, that major objective he wanted to achieve. And his patron's best attempts were unsuccessful in turning that favor. So for the Earl of Essex's case, you know, he wasn't just abandoning Francis, but at the same time, everything he tried to do to get Francis back into the political sphere where he wanted to go was completely unsuccessful because he was just too sort of like toxic. Yeah, he becomes a liability to uh, Essex's own brand, and so he's like, I yeah. can't. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I, I gotta cut. I gotta cut the. Uh, I can't. I forgot what the expression was. Wow, that was good. You gotta cut the fat. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> Talking of bacon and fat. Something, something bacon. There we go. <laughs> something, yes. something. Like, like Emperor Palpatine talking about the Death Star. Something, something, something bacon. <laughs> but, uh, so, for, yeah, but, I mean, for what it was worth, like, the Earl of Essex, Essex did not totally just drop his ass. But it was, you know, it was, it was pretty difficult for him. Uh, although the Queen's anger was acutely towards bacon... she still respected him as a man of law so he wasn't entirely lost in that group but she definitely was not on her good side um sorry if i do um a lot that's sort of my transition thing to get me to move forward but that would that would get you to f in speech class jake just say yeah it would yeah it would (laughs) but guess what i got an a in that class because i was so damn good (laughs) okay I feel the need to defend myself on that because it took me a while to get rid of that habit and now it's coming back. It's all good. I, I noticed mine, yeah, that habit I had disappeared in college and then, you know, here I am 10 years later and I'm like editing our episodes and I'm like, God damn, I say um a lot. Well, that's what editing is for. Click, delete, click, delete. Now I sound like a genius. <laughs> so, <you> click, delete. <laughs> so between 1594 and 1601, Bacon's political career steadily declined and by 1600 he was becoming seriously dissatisfied with the elizabethan sort of regime or kingdom so he kind of stepped back and reassessed himself and said well what do i want to actually do he realized he couldn't do anything while elizabeth was still queen so he was sort of eagerly awaiting for her to pretty much just drop dead and the next guy to come in and take that place. And this is where the completely untold story of his assassination plot comes into play, right? The alternate history timeline splits here. <laughs> right now. He takes Guy Fox's mask and goes and tries to have the gunpowder plot about, what, like 10 years early? Something like is that. This, is, is, this, is this where the InfoWars history starts? Yeah. <laughs> what to try not to tell you? To put chemicals in the water. <laughs> The nitrates in the bacon are turning the frogs gay. <laughs> They're turning the frogs gay! <laughs> why can't I see my kids? <laughs> you know why, sir. You know why. <laughs> yeah, that man should not be allowed within 50 feet of his kids. <laughs> <laughs> so that time eventually does show up, though, where Elizabeth does die, and King James VI reign comes in around 1603. And Francis, again, was like, oh, shit. This guy's cool, right? He doesn't know anything about what happened. Clean slate. <laughs> and then he starts to sort of seek political forgiveness. During James's reign, Francis does rise in power, so he was forgiven, and he would be knighted in 1603, literally around the same time that the king comes to power, before creating a learned council in 1604. As the head of that council... Francis took up a series of issues facing England, sort of similar to what he'd been doing. But here he was dealing again with very touchy subjects. So the Union of England and Scotland, that was a big one and still a big issue today. Um, Religious tolerance legislation, how to deal with that, how to approach it, how to create it. Endorsement of a middle-of-the-road approach for dealing with Catholics and nonconformists. So again, there comes that middle-of-the-road approach he tried to do before. Uh... I thought, Lucas, you laughed, and I'm like, what's funny about that? <laughs> well, history history has shown us that, like, the middle way, never really a good thing. Yeah, it's... It's, it's a policy? Nah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're going to do a little bit. Yeah. It'll be a reform, kind of. So, so at this point, he's Sir Bacon-ed, right? Pretty much. Yeah, he, he was knighted right next to Sir Loin. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've been sitting on that one for a long time. That was uh, good. The wait was worth it. People are people are turning off the podcast now. They're like, nope. That was. Oh my god, he's talking about meat. I gotta go have food. <laughs> so around that time in 1606, uh, Bacon <laughs> would marry the young Alice Barnum. Uh, was the daughter of a wealthy London alderman. And again, it was ma- basically he was continuously building his brand, which was good. I mean, that's, that's good of him. That's smart. You don't want to marry a nobody. Buy that account. Uh, in 1607, Francis would be appointed solicitor general in charge of arguing cases in court. At the same time, too, he would be working on multiple theories of state business including a work with Machiavelli, always screw that name up, about the possibility of a politically active and armed citizenry within England. Again, very punk rock of it. Yeah. (laughs) Later known as America. (laughs) Pretty much. Uh, In 1608, Bacon... I did it again. Uh, Bacon would become clerk of the Star Chamber, the original royal court system which sat at the royal palace at westminster and in being sort of the clerk he had the ability to oversee the day-to-day uh affairs of the legal system and all these really small stuff but also very important things uh scientifically at that particular timeline that's following along this one in politics uh between 1603 and 1613 bacon was continuously active in various groups and created seminal treatises on philosophy and scientific investigation or research. So he was still active. This man was like hella active. He was working all the time. He was He's kind of like the hardest working man in show business or like the LeBron James of politics and science. So but just without the airtime. But it seems like he's doing all this without like fully getting the power that he wants. Like He's like working his ass off to have like a... A medium amount of power and influence. He's spreading himself out so much that it seems like... Yeah, in so many different fields. Yeah, if, if one thing falls through, it's like, oh, that's okay. I've got, like, plan, you know, M through X still on the back burner. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, and for what Lucas says, that is still something that he does lament a little bit. Because in some of the things that I read, especially some personal correspondences and little notes he would make... He did get kind of irritated by the fact that that was not moving quickly. But what uh, Cody stated was true, too. He was looking at it like, okay, if that doesn't work, then I at least have this other thing I can look at, too. Right? Because science is not like a backwater at this point in time. It's still going forward. And so to him, at least, he's not like choosing to do something like alchemy or whatever, which is totally made up. At that point in time, I'm pretty sure even they knew that. But, you know, it was basically sort of just showing his bets in case something failed. In 1613, Bacon would become the attorney general, signaling his rise to the peak of his political career. So he's there. It's sunshine and rainbows shooting out of his ass, right? As with all attorney general. Pretty much. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Attorney's general. Attorney's general, yeah. It is, yeah, actually. Yeah. The militant branch of attorneys. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So in 1616, he became the member of what was known as the Privy Council. And this was a body of advisors or private counselors appointed by the sovereign in this case. Or it says a sovereign because I took a dictionary definition here. Or governor general. And was appointed Lord Keeper of the Great Seal the following year, thus achieving the same position that his father had held. So we're at ecstasy. He's reached the high politics level. It's fantastic. Except... At that point in time, there is sort of a drop-off that we have to face. He does later get promoted to title of the Lord Chancellor of the Council in 1618. Again, a further step up. Yeah. Can we just take a moment to discuss just how, like, sci-fi slash fantasy some of these titles sound? Lord Keeper of the Great Seal. Like, what the? <laughs> oh, yeah, I think you mentioned something called the Star Chamber a while ago, and I just let that go. But <laughs> Do you want me to go back Lord to that? Lord Chancellor of the Council? Like, what? <laughs> I mean, like, without going too deep into it, like, the Star Chamber was basically, like, the first royal court system. And I don't know why Star Chamber was the choice he took with that name. Like, beyond me. Because it's badass. That's, that's <laughs> it's <awesome>. great. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to go into the Star Chamber? 
<laughs> I, I would freaking love to be a part of the Star Chamber. <laughs> the Star Chamber sounds like, you know, the end of 2001 is Space Odyssey. <laughs> it's the Star Chamber where the space baby goes and floats for infinity. My God, it's full of stars. Calm down, Francis. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> anyway. I, got, I got a Resident Evil vibe off of hearing stars. <laughs> Anybody who plays that game will know what I'm talking about, but yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, to be honest, like overly like dramatic titles aside, being Lord Chancellor of the the um, Privy Council was a huge like deal for him because he had achieved that high political council that his father had held and then surpassed it. Basically saying like, see dad, I'm better than you, even though he'd been dead for like God knows how many years. Mm. Uh, although things had taken a positive turn for Francis, he would be impeached from the Privy Council on the charge of corruption. There is somewhat of an issue on that, because Bacon had actually fallen victim to an incident of intrigue because of his arguments against the abuse of monopolies in the government, indirectly attacking his close friend, the Duke of Buckingham, who was closely favored by the king. So basically, he kind of was like being the um, like the deep throat of like... Uh, Tudor England, basically stating, like, I don't approve of these political monopolies that certain lords hold over people. And as a result, too, in that attack, he sort of swept a little close and hit one of his friends who, by in turn, then stated to the king that he had been offended, which was not good. Uh, in order to protect his close allies, the king sacrificed bacon. <laughs> <laughs> Into the frying pan, bacon. <laughs> for the good of the country. For, the, for king and country. But uh, he he saw bacon as sort of like a necessary removal because his enemies had already accused him of taking bribes in connection with his position as a judge. So it wasn't entirely out of the question. Like, people would kind of believe that if he was accused of it. For his part, of course, Bacon saw no means of escaping this, so he just decided to declare guilt and just accept the fate that even though he really didn't deserve it, he was just like, I'll just take this whooping and continue to move forward. Uh, the ultimate cause for Bacon's demise in at least the political circles was the conspiracy of his adversaries and the court factions and parliament who used him as a scapegoat in order to protect the Duke of Buckingham from both public anger and open aggression. So it was sort of like basically saying, like, somebody got to go. It's going to be you. And he's been around a long time. He's had a long, full life and political career. He can go. What was he like? He was in there for 37 years. He's out there past than Jeff. Like, Jeff died four years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Good old Jeff. Um, the ultimate end of Francis's political life was spelled in the loss of all of his respective offices and his seat in Parliament. But again, in exchange, he retained his titles and his personal property, so it really wasn't a huge issue. At least Sir not Bacon, for him. Sir Baconator remains. Yeah, the Sir Baconator remains. So, so they, so they canceled Francis Bacon, but he's still in a position of great wealth and authority. Like it didn't hurt him, really. No, not really. No, it was basically like them saying it's nothing personal; it's just politics. Forced retirement, knowing that if they did like strip him of all of his titles and all of his personal property. Because he was pretty influential, that could also backfire on the people who were trying to get rid of him, right? Because now you've created a martyr whose honor has been attacked, or not a martyr per se, but like, you know, political martyr. A guy with nothing to lose. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, he was still respected enough to where it would be really not a great idea for them to piss people off who liked him. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people liked him because he was... He was moving for certain reforms and things that were more beneficial to the, the general populace, right? Like, he didn't want the lords to have too much power and stuff like that, so... I mean, that's pretty much where they were sort of seeing that ultimate end goal be if they decided to totally, like, just destroy his reputation because they knew they would probably be, like, sticking a... or they would be putting a stick in the hornet's nest, pretty much, attempting not to get stung. Mm-hmm. And that was, like, they had to sort of make that decision and go, uh, you know, I'll let him go with his title. I mean, there at least, then we got rid of him, but he's not all angry at us. He's still got something. Bacon would devote the last five years 
of his life, though, to the study of philosophical or f- philosophical work. God, I love English. I love words. <laughs> I love words. Uh, in that, he on the 9th of April, sixteen twenty-six. In that particular sort of vibe goes out to a place called Edrundel Mansion in Highgate outside of London. And this is the moment where he catches pneumonia. Mm. You know, this is sort of transitioning to the end of his life. A detailed account of the circumstances around his death comes from John Aubrey's book, Brief Lives, which I directly quote in this one, uh, in which he states that Bacon attempted to test his scientific method at Arundel, I think that's how you pronounce that. Somebody will get mad at me somewhere. In the winter snow, where he was struck with the possibility of using snow as a meat preservative due to the low temperature. Which is pretty revolutionary, right? He's basically predecessing the refrigeration unit. Yeah. Uh, According to the direct quote, it was stated that they were resolved that they would try the experiment presently. Right? No time like now. They alighted out of the coach, or meant that they just left the coach, and went to a poor woman's house at the bottom of Highgate Hill, wherein they purchased the fowl, and the woman had to accentuate it, which is a chicken. A, yeah. They purchased the chicken. And they purchased the chicken. <laughs> Here we go. So get ready. Uh, basically, accentuating mean they just killed the thing. Like, it, it, eviscerate is literally the synonym to that word. Upon stuffing the fowl, or chicken in this case, with snow, Bacon contracted a fatal case of pneumonia, According to Aubrey's account, the snow was so chilled him that he immediately fell so extremely ill that he could not return to his lodging, but went to the Earl of Adrundel's house at Highgate where they put him into a damp bed that had not been lain in, <laughs> which gave him such a cold that in two or three days he had died of suffocation. Wow. This is literally uh, George Washington all over again. <laughs> Oh, uh, that's a nice callback. <laughs> or Thomas Jefferson or any of those people. <laughs> Look, he, he's got a minor cold. It progresses to pneumonia. They put him in a wet bed and said he died, uh, I guess. Yeah, whoa. Well, also, you have to assume that, like, at this time, the mattress is stuffed with, like, rushes and reeds. Oh, yeah. And, I, you know, like, mm. typically, you would change that seasonally, maybe. And if nobody had slept in that bed for, like, months, that means no one had changed it. So, yeah, they're probably full Ooh, of black yeah. mold and mildew uh, and uh, skin uh, cells and sweat. You know, like your mattresses today. Yeah. <laughs> You've got, like, water bears floating around on your mattress, yeah. Try not to think about that as you go to sleep. But, uh, I mean, for what it's worth, like, yeah, the, the concept to me is that I can't obviously comment on that portion of their time period that they could probably have thought, he's cold, maybe fire, maybe a fireplace. Who knows? But putting him in a cold room that was damp just further accentuated that problem to him just, as we know with pneumonia, basically him drowning in his own fluids in his lungs, which is not a good way to go. No, no, no. No, it wasn't. I would, that would be pretty low on the list of my ways to die, just under, yeah. maybe actually just above being burned to death. I, I've been hospitalized with pneumonia when I was younger. It's not fun. No. I have asthma, so I know all about how fun that can be. Yeah. Lucas, tell us about the roller coaster of a ride that's been. Okay, good talk. <laughs> so Bacon is dead. He is dead. The bacon has been cooked. The bacon. <laughs> well, it could have been cooked. It might have still been alive. Well, yeah, yeah, if they had cooked him a little, yeah, it might have yeah, warmed him up. He yeah. needed that. He's, uh, he's been placed on the breakfast table in heaven, and uh... <laughs> <laughs> he's riding that cast iron frying pan in the sky. <laughs> um, for what it was worth, even after his death, though, he would be buried in St. Michael's Church in St. Albans uh, at the news of his demise. Over 30 of the greatest scientific, philosophical, and political minds in England had compiled their eulogies to his memory, several of which would later be published in Latin, which makes that slightly harder to read, but I won't judge them on that. Their intentions were good. Oh, they all spoke, uh, they all read Latin back then. Yeah, back in the day. was common. Yeah, they're like, this will never be an outdated language. We're just going to write it in Latin. (laughs) Which is sort of a thing for me because my dad is a biologist, sort of. He works in animal species and he used to be a naturalist. So Latin to me is not fluent, 
but I can kind of understand it, which is like a wonderful use of my brain space. I I, I spent the last week uh, deciding that I was going to learn old English. Oh. And, oh. You know, a useful dead language. Um, but the funny thing about it is like when you hear it and you read it, it, it it's like English with head trauma. You're like, oh, if I got hit in the head incredibly hard, <laughs> this would make total sense. Oh, no. I, I used to take a class where we read like ancient English literature. So like Beowulf and stuff like that and the Canterbury Tales. Absolutely that. That's literally my interpretation is it's it's regular English if you had smacked it in the head with a brick. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, to his death, Bacon did leave personal assets amounting to 7,000 pounds at the time. That's a lot of money. And lands that realized 6,000 pounds. His debts, on the other hand, amounted to more than 23,000, oh. which was not great. Uh-huh. The equivalent of more than 3 million pounds at current value. <laughs> so, for what it's worth, I mean, his... His reputation and his legend lives on as the Baconator. <laughs> but his, at this point in time, we sort of leave him at his corporeal material assets at this point in time. All right. Wow. Well, I, I have to tell you, when I promote this episode on our, on our social media, I'm definitely just going to take a picture of, like, the Wendy's Baconator. <laughs> <laughs> you like the square patty? <laughs> yep. Yep. Square is the most logical shape for the patty. Experimentation in my own deduction has shown <laughs> <laughs> that the square is the correct shape. I haven't tested it, but I thought a lot about it. And therefore, it must be right. And that's all you need, right? Yeah, perfect. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I guess that kind of uh, brings the first part of this uh, these shenanigans to a to a close. So uh, that's going to end the hacked history portion of this podcast. Uh, we want to thank our guests. Cody and Garth, thanks for uh, showing up. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us on. This was really fun. I, I knew very little about Francis Bacon, and now I know quite a bit more. Thanks, guys. Did you confuse him with the artist? Oh, yeah. I, I, I did, yes. I, I, I didn't... I mean, I knew they were apparently different, but I thought that... Um, I, I don't know. I thought they were... Uh, one was a pseudonym of the other or something like that, but yeah, now I know much more. Yeah, but uh, please go check out their podcast. Least Haunted is a great podcast. Uh, Jake and I have definitely listened to some of their stuff. Great stuff out there. Go check them out. Uh, just like us, they're available on pretty much any podcast platform out there. Just go to the search bar, type in Least Haunted, give their show a listen. It's great stuff. Wow, thanks. thanks. And we'll be doing part two of this uh, on, on our next episode, which I think we'll be releasing about the, about the same time. So if you want to hear more about yeah well, what, what should, should we give them a little preview cody what, what is the topic of our next well i think the lead got mentioned at the very beginning but people oh, probably okay. forgot they've probably forgotten by this time uh but we were going to talk about a specific haunting of this a very silly and maybe stupid nature that is tied <laughs> to uh francis bacon just like everything goes better with bacon you know the bacon story continues uh over it on our podcast you guys will be our guests so uh hope to see you all there yeah. oh well we kind of have to be there now no, <laughs> <laughs> captain passive aggressive over here <laughs> <laughs> all right well uh it's been a pleasure and uh we'll catch you guys on your podcast <laughs>